So I have a question. How are you? Great. Great? Great. How are you really? How are you feeling today? How, is, how are you feeling physically today? <laughs> I heard that. Yeah, we're all like, well, okay, that's sort of normal, right? <laughs> if you're feeling healthy, <clears throat> if you're feeling great, praise the Lord for health. Isn't that amazing? If you're dealing with a physical issue or issues today, praise God that he's still in control of that too. And he will see you through one step at a time. Maybe not as fast as we'd like him to, but he'll see you through. So these machines that we travel in, this human machine of ours, pretty rugged. You know, we, we can take a lot of punishment and keep on going. But in other ways, this machine is pretty fragile, isn't it? It doesn't, doesn't take much sometimes to knock us down, take us out of the game. And when the Lord built us, when the Lord created us, he gave us sensors to know if we had any issues. He gives us symptoms. He gives us pain or discomfort. So we know, hey, there's a, I have a medical problem. I've got to take care of that. But sometimes we don't have symptoms. Sometimes it takes a blood test or an x-ray to reveal, oh my gosh, I've got a problem I didn't even know I had. <clears throat> Our passage today is like the x-ray. To have us look to see if we have a problem, not with our physical body, but with our spiritual body, the church. And Paul is going to act like this caring physician to go over the x-ray with us and help us look deep into the x-ray to see, do we have this problem in our church or not? <clears throat> because if we have this problem and we don't take care of it, it is life-threatening to a church. Wow, that's a very heavy prognosis. <clears throat> so what's the problem Paul wants to tell us about? Let's pray, then we'll find out. Father, we, we come to this part of the service, and as Bill said, yes, we are, we are created to worship you, and part of our worship right now is to listen to your voice. Not to my voice, but to your voice. These are your words we're going to study. And Lord, we would never be so arrogant or so foolish as to just... Take your word casually. And Lord, you know how we're wired. We have really teeny tiny attention spans and we're scattered and we, we got a million things going on in our head all the time. But I ask you, Father, to give us your supernatural strength to clear all that clutter away just for the next 30 minutes so we can focus on the truth. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind to understand and a heart to embrace your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. And while you're turning there, have you noticed what's been going on in our church lately? Pastor Mark has been away for a few weeks on doctor's orders to rest his voice. And it's taken... The amazing Bruce Cook, the brilliant Michael Camarina, and now me to try to fill in for one guy. All three of us to try to fill in the gap of one man. This shows you how valuable Pastor Mark is to this church. And he, Lord willing, is going to be back next week. Here's a little context for our passage. We're just going to cover two verses today. We're if you were with us when Pastor John was the senior pastor, we're kind of going back to Pastor John's speed right now. We're going to do two verses. Kind of like it. Something feels really comfortable about this for me. 
But here's a little context. In, in chapter 5 began, Bruce covered this so beautifully, but Paul began chapter 5 by encouraging us with the certainty, with the absolute certainty that Jesus is coming back. The Lord Jesus himself is coming back. So you and I, we need to be alert and prepared for our king's arrival. And then also in chapter 5, Paul reminded us of our security, our absolute security in Christ. We who trust in Jesus are destined for salvation by the grace of God. Without Jesus, without Jesus, you and I are destined for God's wrath. So we see here that Scripture teaches something very clearly. Scripture teaches that every human being has just two possible destinies. Just two possible destinies. Every human being has just two possible destinies. Salvation or wrath. Those are our two destinies. We are either destined, we are either destined to bask in the love and salvation of the Lord Jesus for all of eternity, or we are destined to face the wrath of God for all eternity. Only Jesus can rescue us from the wrath of God. We cannot rescue ourselves. How did Jesus rescue us? He died on the cross for our sins. Jesus bore God's wrath. Jesus bore on his body the full wrath of God on our behalf. God accepted Jesus' death as payment in full for your sins and my sins, all of our sins, past, present, future. The moment, the moment you and I put our faith in the Lord Jesus, our eternal destiny changed from wrath to joy. Michael covered this last week, but look at verse 11 with me real quick, because this is context just right before we get to 12 and 13, our passage. But in verse 11, look at Paul writes, he says, therefore, the therefore means because of the amazing truth that Jesus is absolutely coming back, and you and I are absolutely destined for salvation. Because of that, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. You know what? You and I have a great privilege in life. Do you realize the privilege you and I have in life? We have the privilege, the absolute privilege of knowing the truth and encouraging each other and encouraging each other to embrace the truth. What a privilege we have. But I don't think, I don't think Christians do enough embracing. I'm not talking about hugging. We are really good at that. I'm talking about embracing the truth of God. Embracing means to really and truly believe every single word God says, no matter what. That's what it means to embrace the truth of God. I don't know if we do that enough. But when we really believe every word God says, no matter what, you know what happens to us? Our troubles get smaller, and our God and our faith just keeps getting bigger and bigger. This is why Paul urges us to keep encouraging each other, keep teaching each other, keep reminding each other to trust in the Lord. The trouble is, though, (laughs) our human attention span is just so ridiculously short. I mean, come on, we can trust the Lord in some big old crisis and in the very next moment be upset because we can't find a parking place. You and I, you and I, we need constant encouragement. We need constant instruction. 
And we need constant reminders of God's faithfulness. With that in mind of encouraging one another, I want you to meet someone. Thank you for the awe. This is my sweet dog, Bella. Joni and I rescued Bella from death row at a shelter a few months ago. That's not a cape she's wearing. She's not a dog patrol like super pup or something, but just likes that blanket. We've been taking her to a dog training class. And our dog trainer keeps telling us the reason you want to train your dog is because if there's ever, if there's ever an emergency in your house, you want your dog to look at you because you are the only one that can get your dog to safety. There's an emergency. In fact, the trainer said these exact words, and I wrote them down because I thought they were so profound. The trainer said, teach your dog, this is his words, when things look tough, look at me. That's what we're supposed to teach our dog. When things look tough, Bella, look at me. What's true for dogs is true for you and me. In fact, this message is on every single page of the Bible. The Lord tells us over and over again, when things look tough in your life, look at me, because I'm the only one that can lead you through it. We should be constantly reminding each other, constantly encouraging each other to look to the Lord in every circumstance, but especially in our tough times, in our emergencies. Did you notice in verse 11 that Paul doesn't tell us to take comfort? He tells us to give comfort. Give it. If you and I If you and I determine to give comfort and encouragement to each other, then all of us will be comforted and encouraged. Say that again. If we decide, all of us, if each one of us gives comfort and encouragement to each other, then all of us, no one will be left out. All of us will be comforted and encouraged. So at this point in chapter 5, we have a picture of what a healthy church looks like. In a healthy church, the people are alert and prepared for the Lord's return. And they are actively encouraging each other to keep their eyes on the Lord, even in tough times. But a church body is like our physical body. It's a complex organism made up of many pieces and parts. And you know what? You and me, each one of us, we're one of the pieces and parts of the church body. So you know what that means? That means each one of us is capable of being a blessing to the church body or being a pain to the church body. All of this is what's on Paul's heart and mind as he prepares to give further instructions now on our Christian conduct, meaning a healthy attitude that we need in our relationship toward each other. So try to, as we get ready to read these two verses, try to picture the Apostle Paul. He's sitting at a table with his unfinished letters spread out in front of him. The pages are probably made out of papyrus. Paul's likely using what was called a scribe's pen. Scribe's pen was a piece of hard reed cut at a diagonal with a fine tip sliced into the the diagonal point. It worked pretty much like a fountain pen. Paul probably dipped his pen into black, black colored ink. And on a letter this long, Paul would have to keep resharpening his point with a pumice stone to keep writing. This letter we're reading to Thessalonians was one of Paul's first letters, if not the first. He probably wrote it during his second missionary journey when he was in Corinth, Greece. So while Paul was planting new churches in in Greece, he kept a watchful and caring eye on the young church in Thessalonica, Greece. So now, try to picture Paul at his desk. He just praised the Thessalonians 
for their healthy encouragement of each other. And now the Holy Spirit stirs Paul's heart and his pen goes to work again. And he writes these words, verses 12 to 13. He writes, but, but, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Then he writes, live in peace with one another. Paul starts this new instruction in Christian behavior with the word but. With the word but. He's telling his readers, you've done well in your behavior toward each other, but now you need further instruction on your relationship toward your leaders in the church. Paul was either aware that the Thessalonian church, the church in the Thessalonian church was having a problem with authority. They might have. They were a young church. Or Paul just knew that they, he needed to warn them because of a potential problem that was certainly common in the first century, just like it's so common for us in our 21st century. The Lord, through Paul, wants us to understand that it is of the utmost importance for the leaders in the church and those they lead to love and respect each other not that complicated. It's of the utmost importance, the highest priority for the leaders in the church and those they lead to love and respect each other. Last week when Michael was teaching us in the earlier verses, remember what, how he defined sin? Michael taught us that sin is not trusting God. It's a great definition of sin. Sin is not trusting God. Sin causes us to say to God, yeah, I don't really love and respect this leader over here. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I, I want somebody smarter. Or I want somebody younger. Or I want somebody older. Or I want somebody different than this person. Because basically, God, I'm not really interested in your kind of leader. I like my kind of leader. If you and I have even a little bit, if you and I just have a wee little bit of disrespect or unlove toward a leader in our church or toward anyone in our church, it's like having just a little bit of cancer in our body. Let me say that again. If we have just even a little bit of an unloving or disrespectful attitude toward a leader in our church or toward anyone in our church, it's like having a little bit of cancer in our body. What is cancer? We talk about it a lot. What is cancer? I looked it up. Look at this very simple but profound definition from the American Cancer Society. Here's what cancer is. This is how they define it. On their website, what is cancer? Cancer can start any place in the body. It starts when cells grow out of control and crowd out the normal cells. This makes it hard for the body to work the way it should. This is cancer. Now, keep your eyes on that definition of physical cancer, and let's compare what the physical cancer is to spiritual cancer. Likewise, spiritual cancer can start any place in the church body. It starts when people get out of control of the Holy Spirit and start to impact the other people in the church. And this makes it hard for the church body to work the way it should. Let's look at one more example together, just because we really need to understand healthy church, unhealthy church, what that looks like. Do you recognize this man? You know who that is? Who is it? Stephen Hawking, yep. He was a theoretical physicist. 
I'm not really even sure what that means, but it's a, he was a theoretical physicist, a brilliant mathematician, of course, and a scientist. His mind has been compared to Einstein and other super geniuses. Stephen uh, died over, a little over a year ago. But while he was alive, Stephen's mind, his mind was in exceptional working order. But his body was ravaged by a terrible disease that left him totally immobile and unable even to talk. Nothing was wrong with Stephen's mind, but his body was paralyzed. The disease Stephen suffered from was ALS. ALS is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Do you know what ALS is? Listen to this definition of ALS. It's not a full medical definition. It's a simplified one, but it's accurate. ALS basically causes each part of the body to ignore the other parts. That's what ALS basically does. It causes each part of your body to ignore the other parts of your body. Stephen's body became useless because his body ignored the other parts. His body did not work as a unit. It worked as a bunch of separate little pieces and parts that didn't care much for the other pieces and parts of his body. Stephen's spectacular mind was trapped in a malfunctioning body. A church can become just like Stephen Hawking's body. The head of the church, the brilliant mind of the church, is the Lord Jesus himself. But you and I, you and I make up those pieces of the body. If you and I do not love and respect each other, if we ignore any parts, any parts of our church, or any parts of the church body, people, our church can become paralyzed, just like Stephen Hawking's body did. When we ever see a weak or a dying church anywhere, there is never, ever anything wrong with the mind, the head of the church. The Lord Jesus is in perfect working order. It's the people, it's the body, it's the congregation that have been ravaged, this case not by ALS, but by SIN. When the church body is healthy, when a church body is healthy, the gospel of Christ goes out, goes out into the community and out into the world. But when a church body is malfunctioning, the gospel message goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. It's no wonder our adversary, the devil, loves, loves to turn members of the church against each other, especially against the leadership. It's one of the quickest, easiest ways for Satan to make sure to spoil the ministry of a church. In our passage today, Paul specifically states that there must be healthy love and respect for the leaders and from the leaders. This is serious stuff. This is serious stuff from the mind of our Lord. Let's take a look at our two verses in a little more detail. Verse 12, Paul writes, but, we already talked about that, we request of you. The word request means to ask with urgency. When Paul writes, we request of you, he is saying, we are begging you. We are begging you. Earlier in the letter, Paul has written with an authoritative tone when he has given us commandments from the Lord. But here in this passage, Paul is acting less like an apostle and more like a loving, caring physician trying to beg us to take better care of ourselves. He's begging us to take good care of ourselves. Paul, in this passage, reminds me of a doctor I know. About a year or so ago, I had shoulder surgery. And, oh man, my surgeon, Dr. Weber, at USC, had to be the most caring physician I've ever met. In my first visit with him after surgery, he looked me in the eye, 
And he asked me a question as if he was asking me to do him a huge favor. He said, David, will you please promise me not to lift anything with that arm during the week? My arm hurt. I wasn't about to lift anything with it. So I followed his orders. And when I came back a week later and said, uh, yeah, Dr. Weber, I didn't lift a thing with that arm. When I told him I hadn't lifted anything with my arm, he looked at me like I just saved his child's life. And he said, oh, thank you. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I'm performing poorly. I can't, I can't capture it, but I couldn't believe the look at his eyes. He said, oh, thank you. He, uh, he cared so much about my health. He took it personally. He took it as a personal favor that I followed his orders that were completely and entirely for my benefit. Paul is doing the same thing in verse 12. He's pleading with us. He's begging us to follow the Lord's orders that are totally met for your benefit and my benefit. Paul is begging us, please, please, please love and respect each other. Please love and respect each other. Verse 12, but we respect, we request, we beg of you, brethren. The word brethren in scripture has a very specific meaning. It means those who have put their faith in the Lord and continue to do his will. It's a two-pronged thing. Your brethren, if you've put your faith in the Lord and you are seeking to do the will of God. Jesus gave us this definition in, in Matthew 12, 50. Jesus said, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he or she is my brother and sister and mother. So the words we're reading today from Paul are directed to every single one of us that call Jesus Lord. So Paul writes, but we request of you, we are begging you, you brother and you that love and want to serve God, that you appreciate. The word appreciate in the Greek means to get, somebody, to, get to know somebody so well that you truly, you can truly appreciate who they are and what they do. This isn't a casual appreciation like, oh yeah, 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 I know that person, I've seen his picture on the website or I've seen him around church or whatever. No, 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 this is where you make a sincere effort to really get to know who that person is and what they do. So who are we supposed to appreciate? It's kind of like that cheer in high school, 2468, who do we appreciate? So who do we appreciate? Let's read on. Verse 12, but we are begging you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Paul's specific focus here is on the shepherds of the church. He's speaking about the pastors and elders, but this passage absolutely relates to all leaders in the church. We see here that God loves order. That's not new information to us. God is a God of order. God followed a specific order when he created the heavens and the earth. God follows a very specific order in dealing with sin and salvation. And you know what? God has an organized plan for his church. God has an organizational table for the church. It's a very simple one, but it's very profound. Here's God's plan for the church. God's plan for the church is he calls some to lead, and he calls some to follow, and he calls all of us to love and respect each other. That's it. This is the Lord's plan for the church. Some lead, some follow, but every single one loves and respects each other. And did we notice in verse 12, Paul does not identify the leaders by their title or by their name or by their personality or by their status, but only, only by their service, by the work they do. What do they do? What work do leaders do? There are three areas mentioned in verse 12. He says, appreciate those who work hard among you, who have charge over you in the Lord, and who give you instruction. 
Let's break this down a little bit. Start with the first area of service. If you are feeling the Lord to call you into leadership or you already are in leadership in the church, don't expect it to be a soft, cushy job. <laughs> doesn't exist. Leadership by God's definition, not man's definition, leadership by God's definition is hard work. That's how God defines leadership, working hard. And where does God want his leaders to do their hard work? Where does he want them working? He says, among the congregation. Well, what does that mean? It means something really special. It means that God calls some people to work behind the scenes. So many of you do that. You serve the Lord so faithfully, week in, week out, day in, day out, serving God in ways that are sort of in the background, just serving the Lord. But God calls the shepherds of the church, the leaders of the church, the pastors, the elders, to work among the congregation. This means to be visible in the congregation. Visible, why? Visible for the very sole purpose of being available to the congregation. And you notice God does not call his workers, his leaders, to be above the congregation. Leaders are not called to work above the congregation. The Lord wants his leaders working among the congregation, right in the middle of it. Leaders, by God's definitions, must be available, accessible, and accountable. Second part of church leadership, leaders have charge over you and the Lord. That's pretty clear. It means God gives church leaders authority over you. What kind of authority do church leaders have? Paul tells us the authority is in the Lord. This means church leaders have authority in spiritual matters, things pertaining to the Lord. Pastors, elders, and leaders are called to give guidance, counsel, instruction, and even correction in spiritual matters, not political matters, not social matters, legal, professional, spiritual. In fact, the only authority, the only authority church leaders have is the authority that comes from the Lord, not from themselves. They have no authority whatsoever in themselves. All of their authority comes from the Lord. This means two important things to you and I. It means the leaders in the church must absolutely not take over leadership so they can push their own agendas, their own selfish agendas. And the, other, the, the truth of it is that leaders must humbly seek the will of God in every decision they make for his church. Church leaders serve the Lord. Hard, not themselves. And it also means for the people in the church must lovingly submit to the authority of the leaders. Why? Because their authority comes from God. When we submit to our leaders, we are submitting to God's will for us. We are submitting to God's plan for his church. And the third role of leadership is to give instruction. It includes counseling, preaching, and teaching. Teaching and preaching requires diligent study and a lot of preparation so you can accurately proclaim what God is saying. Not what you think he's saying, not what you hope he's saying, not what you want him to say, but what he's actually saying. There is no place, no place for lazy preparation or shortcuts in God's church. Whether you're leading a Bible study, a, a community group, or a Sunday school class, or any teaching up here, anywhere, there's no place for lazy preparation. To give instruction also means to admonish. And admonish means to caution 
or give a warning. And it has the tone of a big brother. And not a nasty big brother, but a nice, loving big brother. This is the picture of a loving big brother putting his arm around a brother or sister in Christ and just saying, I love you, but you know, you're a little bit off path. This is what that is to admonish someone. You're just walking a little bit away from God's will for you. And because you're a loving big brother, if that person doesn't pay attention, you just squeeze your grip on their shoulder a little more until you get their attention. But you're just, a, just guiding them gently. That's what is pictured here. And the Greek sentence structure indicates that these are not three different groups or three different kinds of leaders, but one kind of leader who has this threefold function. Leaders in God's church work hard among the congregation. They have charge over you in the Lord, and they give you instruction. So that's verse 12. Let's look at verse 13. But I'm going to read verse 12 again because we only got two verses. But we request of you, but we are begging you, brethren, my brothers and sisters in Christ that love the Lord and want to do his will, we begging you, please appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Verse 13, and, meaning Paul's got more to say, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Paul is saying, I'm begging you now, not only to appreciate your leaders, but to esteem them. What does esteem mean? If you esteem them, what does that mean? Esteem means to admire. Admire your leaders. It's okay. It's okay to admire your leaders in the church. In fact, Paul adds, esteem them very highly. This means to take your admiration and supersize it. Supercharge it. Really respect them above and beyond. This is what he's saying. Why? Because these are the leaders that God has placed over you. So for the Lord's sake, you esteem them very highly. And then Paul adds two more words. See that? Esteem them very highly in love. That part there about the love, that's the key to the whole thing. Here's why. 1 Peter 4.8. Peter writes, above all, in other words, highest priority, highest priority, above all, keep fervent, keep strong, keep committed, keep devoted in your love for one another. Why? Oh, because love covers a multitude of sins. Here's something I bet you didn't know. Church leaders make mistakes. I bet you that never occurred to you. How could a human being make a mistake? Well, you know what? When leaders make mistakes, we cover them with love. That's what we're commanded to do. Not, not with judgment, not with griping, blah, blah, blah. With love. We cover each other with love. When we make mistakes, love covers a multitude of sin. We see here, though, do you see this? We have a principle in Scripture that the church can greatly influence and greatly impact the effectiveness of their leaders. How do we do that? How does a church greatly impact the effectiveness of their leaders? The Word of God is saying your leaders will lead you more effectively when you appreciate, respect, and love them well. When you appreciate, love, and really respect your leaders, they will lead you more effectively. So just to be clear, extra clear, leaders do not work hard to try to win your love and affection. Leaders work hard in obedience to God's Word, period. And the people of the church are called to respect their leaders in obedience to the Lord. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul writes, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard. There it is again. Work hard at preaching and teaching. Work hard. Worthy of double honor. And then Hebrews 13.17, the writer of Hebrews says, 
Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Let's look at how Paul concludes this passage. We're going to read it one more time. Again, only two verses. We probably have it memorized by now, don't we? But we request of you, we beg you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Live in peace with one another. Wow. Takes us right back to where we started when we looked at what it means to have a healthy physical body and a healthy spiritual body in the church. When any part of our body, our physical body, is not at peace, we're not healthy. If we have a sore throat, we got a sprained ankle, or we got an upset stomach, we're not healthy. We're not at our best. Likewise, in the church body, the church is healthy when only when all of the people are at peace with each other. If we have a problem with pride or bitterness or, or selfishness anywhere in the church, we're not at our best. Well, look what David wrote in Psalm 133.1. This is amazing. He wrote this a long time ago. He said, behold. Behold means this is really important. Don't miss this. You've got to see this. If you're going to see anything today, see this, he's saying. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brothers, brethren, those who love the Lord and follow his will. How good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. That exclamation point came from David, not from me. He put that there. This is important. So we see here three wills of God. It is the will of God for the leaders in the church to work hard among the flock in loving, humble obedience to the Lord. It is the will of God for the church to appreciate, love, and respect the shepherds that God places over them. And it is the will of God for you and I to worship and serve the Lord together with absolute peace and unity. That's God's will for our church. That's God's will for our lives. We don't need to pray to wonder what God's will is. That's it. Be at peace and be at unity. All relationships in Christ's church must be characterized by love and respect. There cannot be a healthy church without love and respect from head to toe. This is the perfect time to stop and share communion together. As we prepare to take communion, I'd like to read to you a passage out of Colossians. So you can just close your Bibles and just listen as you get ready to take communion. This is where Paul writes about the head of our church, the Lord Jesus. Listen to these words. It's amazing as we prepare to take communion. He writes, He, Jesus, is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That blood is symbolized by the juice we're going to drink together. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, Jesus, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, meaning formerly destined for God's wrath, yet he, Jesus, now has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. The body of his death we celebrate in the bread that we take in communion. Why did Jesus do this? In order to present you before the Lord holy and blameless and beyond reproach. 
My brothers and sisters, let's be honest with each other. Let's be honest in our own hearts. We know who we are. We know what kind of people we are. We're broken. We have some really good moments. And we have some iffy moments. We make really good decisions. And we make really poor decisions. We can be so faithful and we can be so unfaithful. We can be so obedient and we can be so disobedient. We know this is true. Yet, look what we just read. Because of what Christ did on the cross, when you and I stand before God, you and I stand before God holy. Holy means perfect. We stand before God, you and I, knowing who we really are. We stand before God because of Christ holy in God's eyes. We come before God blameless. And we come before God without a single fault or a single blemish. This is the power of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and for me. This is what we are celebrating in communion. So instead of closing in prayer from up here, I'm going to ask you in a moment to just have private prayer right where you're sitting. Prepare your heart to take communion. Take this moment to confess any sin that you know is in there. Give yourself a moment just to think about what Jesus did for you on the cross, that you are now holy and blameless in the eyes of God. You have passed from wrath into the joy of salvation. And then when you're ready, just come up and take the elements. The elements are at the front here, and there's a table in the back. And bring the elements back to your seat. Take communion privately. And when you're finished, we'll have one more worship song. And then uh, the prayer team will be here to pray for you at the end of the service. So now please, bow your heads, prepare for communion.